we interrupt this series to bring you an important message on how to bring your whole life under the blessing of God. That's what we're going to be doing for a few Sundays, interrupting the series on In My Place Condemned He Stood, the Biblical Pattern of Atonement. Let me share a little bit of history. I was thinking about the 40 years, isn't that unbelievable, the 40 years that I've been in this church. And the conversations I've had with people, I've had people come up with all sorts of suggestions about what I should be preaching about. Boy, Pastor Don, we really need, a, we really need some messages on abortion. How come you never say anything about divorce? We really need some teaching on same-sex marriage and sexual morality in the church. Boy, Pastor Don, somebody ought to talk, and I'm thinking, I guess who that would be. Somebody ought to talk more about revival than we're hearing these days in the pulpit of the church. So I get lots of advice. I'm grateful for it all. I've never, I have never in 40 years, not one time, other than a church treasurer, I have never had anybody come up to me and say, boy, Pastor Don, you know, we're just not hearing enough about giving in our church. Never. And the weird thing about that is, the Jesus, you know the one we sing to all the time with our eyes closed and our hands raised, which is biblical, by the way, not just charismatic. So I'm not mocking it. I'm just saying with, with that intensity of worship that we express, the problem is that Jesus talked about two subjects far more than any other. The first was eternal judgment. And the second was Money. And I just don't want to stand before Jesus one day and have him say, how come you didn't emphasize any of the stuff I emphasized? Here's the title. It's one of those long Horbin titles. I heard that when I was away and different people spoke that they found ways of doing points in like four words and I just never learned to do that. The title, God created you with instructions on ordering your life around stewardship. My goal in this message is to establish a biblical vision that we all understand about how and why we give to the Lord. Because especially, especially when we start talking about tithing, my experience is the church, even the portion of the church that probably teaches and practices tithing, we still try to mandate and establish it on the basis of, of Old Testament law. That's where most of the texts come from. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I, I do practice all my life, I have. I practice and believe in the practice of the tithe and beyond. I don't think it's spiritually healthy to argue tithing as an Old Testament practice 
that's somehow been replaced by something else in the New Testament church age. I think the difference is this, if I could sum it up briefly. In the Old Testament, tithing is presented as the ceiling. In the New Testament, tithing is presented as the first floor or the ground floor from which you begin to operate. But I think the reason people mistakenly think about tithing in a legal way is the way the New Testament church tries to instruct followers of Jesus to practice tithing. If we invite, I think we invite the kind of arguments against it that we usually receive. Because if we teach tithing as a law, people are going to think of tithing as a law. If we teach tithing as a law, people are going to think about tithing, the tenth. That's what the word means. People say, I tithe 4%. You can't do that. Tithe means tenth. You can't tenth 4%. It doesn't work. But if we teach it as law, people will think of it as law. And I'm not under that law. We're under the law of Christ, 1 Corinthians 9.21. That's where we all live. Not under the Old Testament law. I think it's time to rethink our approach to giving and tithing. I think we need a scriptural approach. It needs to be realigned. That's why the text we're going to go to is Genesis, the book of Genesis. I'm not going to look at tithing in the Mosaic Law. I'm not interested in tithing even in the practice of Abraham, Genesis 14:20, or Jacob, Genesis 28, both of which predate the giving of the law. I want to go back to the opening chapters of Genesis. I want to try and establish, hear me, I want to try and establish not a law, I want to try and establish a pathway that goes somewhere, that takes you somewhere, a lifestyle of cooperating with Father God in the establishing of a proper ordering and safeguarding of everything else that the Lord places under your sphere of governance. And I'm doing it because I'm convinced that with the best of intentions, we can easily distort and pollute with legalistic mandates something that was so obviously established in the opening chapters of the Bible to be life-giving and soul-freeing. So let's look at some of the key principles regarding this pattern of giving in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And of course, there's no mention of tithing here, and I'm not trying to pretend there is. But there is a pattern. There is a pathway that I hope you will clearly see, and it involves the honoring of of the things God has set aside for himself, not for his enrichment, but for our increasing freedom, dominion, development, and joy. So if the person beside you is dozing off, give him an elbow. Point number one. It was clearly the creator's intent that mankind be designed to enjoy an incredible stewarding of the material created realm. You can see it. Genesis 1, 27, 28, 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That's right in the text. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, obviously, man was specifically created to exercise incredible stewardship and dominion over all of God's creation. There was a tremendous amount of authority and freedom and joy that God had given him. It was part of the image of God. Well, this world ended in terrible abuse of the fall. It was clearly God's intent that mankind enjoy a fruitful dominion over the rest of the created realm. Man wasn't an equal to the rest of creation. He was to steward it, subdue it, with a God-given delight and dominion. It's yours, God says. Point number two. Intrinsic to the whole creation account is the setting aside of a portion of the material created realm from man's own touch and use. This, too, isn't complicated. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded them, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. There's the provision. But, here's the exception. Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now please notice that this is more than just a simple act of eat or don't eat. This is not some ceremonial religious ritual in that sense. This is an issue, this is important, this is an issue of knowing how we are made. This is an issue of embracing lovingly created bounds. In effect, God says, everything within your reach is for your use and for your enjoyment. Everything except... A small portion over here. This small portion is not for your touch. I have reserved a small portion of the material realm to be off limits to your own discretionary use. It's right at the heart of the creation account. It's not under your discretion. It's not under your control, as is everything else I have given you. This must be seen to be separate. This is mine. This is not yours. Don't touch this. I mean, the whole creation account, I hope I can make you see this, it revolves around this point. Nothing else makes sense without this central insight. In the garden, God gives man Test. Here's the test. 
Everything else is yours, okay? This isn't yours. There's the whole created realm. All of this is yours. This, this isn't. Don't treat this, don't treat this like everything else. This isn't like everything else. All of this is yours. This isn't. You might try to live like this one portion is exactly like all the rest. In fact, that's what the fall did. You might try to live that way, but it's, it's a lie. This portion is set apart from your own discretionary use. Now, okay, there's the data, but it doesn't explain the reason. Ponder this slowly. Why, why did God reserve a tree? This portion. Don't touch this. Was God going broke? Worried that man would get everything and he'd get nothing? Was he just flexing his muscles? Well, no, Pastor Don. You would all say. God was just testing their obedience. And you're right. Sort of. But you need to probe deeper. What... What kind of obedience? What was the specific nature of this very first test? And, and why did God choose this particular kind of test? There could have been other ways of testing obedience. Maybe some kind of sexual temptation. Maybe God could have set up an idol somewhere in the garden. Would they bow to it? Or would they honor him? There were all sorts of tests God could have, give, could have given. Why? A silly piece of fruit from one tree. Why was that the test? Do you ever ask yourself that? And here's the reason. And everything hinges on understanding it deeply. Because there's nothing ostensibly religious about the fruit. Except at this point in time, the fruit and growth of the garden, that was the sustenance for Adam and Eve. No question. It was what they ate. It was what they lived on. It was the visible means they were given to secure their future life. So that means the kind of test God sets up right at creation is a stewardship test. It's a test that relates to Everything else about Adam and Eve's ongoing life in paradise. This is the very first test in the Bible, and everything hinges on it. Everything else about their dominion over the created order depends on successfully handling this test. And the test is to establish this truth. In terms of man's relationship, both to God and the rest of the created order, his relationship to the set, his relationship to the set-aside portion, hear me, his relationship to the set-aside portion determines his rulership over the rest. Do you see it? 
His relationship to the set-aside portion determines his rulership over the rest. That's the issue. Man's relationship to the part secures his proper relationship to the whole. The test is, what will Adam and Eve do with the part that God says is not theirs? Do they think that everything they can get their hands on is theirs? And they do. That's the lie they come to believe. We live in a world that's still affected by what we call the fall. Do they know the difference between all that God has given them to exercise dominion over and the small portion God has chosen to not put at their disposal? Do you know the difference? See, it's it's not a church bill-paying issue. It's a properly ordered life issue. Three. Now, I really blew it here. You'll need a new screen or something. The fall becomes effective the moment Adam and Eve come to believe they need both their portion and the separated portion of the created world to secure their own future and happiness. We need it all, God. We need it all. It's right there. Genesis 3, 1 to 5. I'm not making it up. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he's trying right away to make God look restrictive. That's not what God said. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Actually, he didn't say that. Lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. All sorts of theological stuff in there. I'm not preaching on that whole text. But notice carefully, at least this much. This is basic. Satan convinces Eve... Eve convinces Adam they will both be better off if they have not only their own portion of the garden, but that portion too. You'll be better off. You, you, need, you need the whole thing. You really do. He convinces them that they will secure their futures better if they ignore the distinction between what is God's separated portion and what is theirs, they're entitled to everything. And what we've learned, you don't have to be a theologian, what we've learned from history of mankind is very simple. In seeking to acquire the whole thing, God's portion, they ended up not only losing what they thought they might gain, but they lost proper relationship to what they had as well. What I'm trying to say is the tithes should never be taught or thought of as God taking away from what we have. Rather, it's his way of 
securing the rest of what we have. And it's only now, only now that we're ready to look at another text from the book of Malachi. Never start with this text. You're just going to be talking about Old Testament law. Frame it in God's creative design for life in this world. Start there. Malachi 3, 6 to 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. So this is the issue. The issue is returning to God. It's not raising money. Return to me, I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, what are you talking about? Return. How are we going to do this? Eight. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes, contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby, here's a great invitation. Try this. Put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer. That's the things that eat their crops. Okay? This is now their portion. You honor me here. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I said before and I want to repeat, those should not be the go-to verses on tithing. That's Old Covenant. I live under the law of Christ. We're not even close to the heart of those verses until we have a proper understanding studying Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's why the point of these Malachi verses is so frequently missed. They're not about money, not directly. The starting place in man's unmaking, Genesis, is his failure to listen to God. This is, don't touch this. You have all of this. This is set aside, okay? So man disobeys. We have the fall, a distance, a separation from God. Malachi is going to say to people, here's how you fix that. Here's how you fix that. When we honor God with our tithe, we're not just obeying some Old Testament religious regulation. Please hear me. We start, and this is what Malachi is talking about, we start unbending what was set askew in the fall in paradise. In honoring God with the tithe, we lay the foundation, the starting place in ordering our lives according to his will and way. And that's not all. We lay the foundation, the starting place for a properly exercised dominion and stewardship over the rest of our created world we've been given so quotes, richly to enjoy, but on his terms. So, 
Tithing is not merely an Old Testament legalistic ritual. I never teach it that way. It is a gracious, God-given provision, not just a regulation. It's a provision not for receiving salvation and forgiveness, which can only be found in faith in Jesus Christ, but the practice of the tithe provides, beyond forgiveness, a fundamental untangling of the threads of the fall in my covetous, fallen heart. It's not a slick plan that some churches have devised for paying bills. It's establishing God's rule into the fabric of my life, not just the religious part. Maybe more than anything else, this pattern of giving shows the extent and the limits of God's authority in my heart. Two tests. Two tests were unfolding in the garden, and in a sense, these same tests are unfolding in this sanctuary. A. First, God tests the issue of rights and authority. Who is the creator of everything in the garden? I don't just mean some doctrinal statement or something you sign on a church membership card. I mean, I mean, did Adam and Eve understand the terms of living as creatures? They didn't have anything by right. They received everything as a gift. Adam and Eve were created beings. They were graciously placed in a garden they didn't build and they didn't earn. Whatever strength they had to tend the garden... They receive from their creator, just like you do when you go to work. So this is still the test. God tests the issues of rights and authority. Did Adam and Eve get it? If they came to see themselves as the owners, as the ones in charge, then they would take the matters of the material world into their own hands, and that's what they did. By and large, that's what people do from that day on. Second, and I'm wrapping up. God tests Adam and Eve's trust in his goodness and care for their future. Would they believe, would they truly, truly believe that everything about their existence would be better if they honored what God said about his portion alone. Could they trust God? Or would they feel like, you know what? There's still something missing here. I don't have that. I don't have that. I, I need that too. I, I'm master of it all. Is that what they would come to think? We know Satan convinced Eve and Eve convinced Adam that they would end up with more if they had God's set-aside portion. And we also know that in taking for themselves the portion that God had set apart, they not only lost God's portion, but contentment in the rest of the garden as well. 
This, I believe, is the biblical starting place in considering the concept of the tithe, the portion. I don't teach it as law. I proclaim it as a pathway. I proclaim it as a pathway to fullness. I want everyone in this church to discover it, but not as a burden, but as unbending the twisted results of the fall in the non-religious parts of your life. The tithe is not bill paying. The tithe is God's provision. And until you see it, well, you just won't see it. It's not God's way of taking anything away. It's his way of protecting you from your own covetous heart and the things that will devour the rest of his created order in your life. Keep your life in the center of the garden and you're just going to bear more fruit there. Now, I know I was talking about money and your money, but I'd still like to hear you say amen, Pastor Don. I'd like to hear you say it a bit louder than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know about you. I need all the help with covetousness that I can get. Anybody else like that? I need all the help with covetousness that I can... I have found my lifestyle, maybe you found this, my lifestyle increases to whatever my income level is. That, the, that the, things, the things that have become absolute necessities now, 30 years ago, were dreams. <laughs> and if, talk to the board, if my income doubled, I probably wouldn't have any leftover money. We need help with this. We need help with this. And that's what that concept of the garden, God's portion, not this. All this is yours, and all this will be better if you honor me with this. And so we're grateful, Lord Jesus, grateful, grateful, that your word is, it's not just sharp, but it's blunt in the way it, it impacts our lives. This is one way, surely, one way we have of making sure our religion isn't just talk. This is the pathway to you blessing our lives. Give us, uh, we're all tender when we think of our wealth. So just come and take our hearts, soften them, and then open them up. That you can speak and say whatever you want into our lives. We trust you that you're a good God you're not out to minus or subtract anything and that even when your commands feel like that it's only because of our selfish perspective if we could see our lives from your end we'd be more quick to honor you in everything bless us now in this little time of prayer together you know the needs of your people physical needs spiritual needs, financial needs. You, you know where we're all at. And you're the one that said, pray one for another. Pray one for another. You 
await that. In Jesus' name, amen.